Summer Lucky was a master's student when she got a window into a problem that some consider the greatest threat to American education. I was at a high school and I was a practicing student. There was a fight in the high school where she was interning between two black students. As tempers escalated, one student removed an article of clothing, probably to keep it from ripping, Lucky says. And she just like went for the girl. And afterwards, the administrators of that building, the one who, I think who might have been actually the lead principal, he was like, and then did you see her? What type of ghetto mess is that? It wasn't the fight that shocked Lucky. It wasn't the student's heated language. What disturbed her most was the principal's response. I looked at him because I'm thinking, like, surely you would catch yourself, but why would you have to label her as ghetto? as a white male administrator, and then to your white female peers. I'm just curious now of what other interactions you've had with students that were primarily of color because the student body was very diverse. What other interactions have you had with them with that rhetoric? Only teachers heard him use a term that by definition means low class, cheap, inferior. The weight of his words, however, would fall squarely upon black and brown students. This is Inspire Podcast, a production of the College of Education and Human Ecology. I'm Robin Chenoweth. Carol Del Grosso is our audio engineer. Racism in schools is not new, but a flood of research in the last 10 years has brought the problem into sharper focus. Students report being called racial slurs by classmates, being reprimanded when their white counterparts weren't for congregating in halls or horseplaying, being harassed for wearing hijabs, being forced to read books that include the N-word. Ohio State professor Muhammad Khalifa studies educational administration and how schools can best combat racism through culturally responsive leadership. We know from federal data that students of color are suspended three, four, five times more than all other students for the same exact offense. And particularly black men are suspended sometimes 15, 20 times more, especially if the a particular offense that they're being suspended for is subjective. Students of color are much more likely to be called out, sent to the office, and arrested in school. The problem spills into academics. Nationally, black students are two times less likely than white students to earn advanced placement credit in science, and nearly three times less likely to earn credit in AP math. If I'm an African-American boy and I go to advanced calculus class, the teacher has multiple ways of suggesting to me that I don't belong there. If I get an A on a the test, they make a big deal out of it. That's a way of tokenizing me. It might be a way of exoticizing me, making me seem that I don't belong there or that there's something strange and magical about me. There are also uh, other ways in which teachers lower expectations on people who look different from them and who are students of color. All of these can be traced by various forms of data. And though education researchers know that a sense of belonging is a significant factor for academic success, one in three students in the United States say they feel like outsiders in their own schools. It impacts the health, the longevity, the life chances, the very humanity of the students. So it's not like you're not understanding algebraic equations or 
not having proper textbook that is age appropriate. It's not like any of those issues. None of those issues are going to stifle, literally take the life opportunities away from people like this issue will. So it's a very deep issue indeed. Educators play an ongoing role in perpetuating racial inequity, often without realizing it. Former teacher and PhD student Christian Hines saw teachers de-escalate tense situations among white students. But then... If a black kid starts standing up and projecting their voice and getting angry, they're automatically on the school phone calling the administrator, thinking a fight's going to break out. And I'm like, but you didn't do that for the other students. So why did you do that for this kid? And it's always that, um, well, um, let's go ahead and say it. You did it because they were black. And I'm just like, you may want to check that or reassess that because that's harmful to the student. And you don't even realize it because now they have a disciplinary action. How much do you think fear plays into it? Is that a big part of it? Oh, it's extremely a big part. It's a lot of what provokes the policing within the schools because it's a different dynamic, number one, when you're in the classroom and you feel threatened. But even when they're in open spaces, like during hall changing times, during lunch times, like I would literally see teachers who had like hall duty or lunch duty. And if they see me or other teachers of color, it doesn't necessarily have to be a black teacher. And they're like, oh, well, you see this group of kids over there, they're being kind of loud. Can you go talk to them? And my first thought in my mind is, well, why can't you talk to them? Of course, nearly all educators go into the profession because they want to help kids. So how can schools deal with racism in a way that uplifts hurting students? Just like Summer Lucky discovered after the high school fight she witnessed, combating bias and discrimination begins with school leadership. It takes a shift from the top to institute any real change. Muhammad Khalifa drew the same conclusion while teaching in Detroit schools. I recognize quickly that if teachers don't have the proper support, and even though they might be equity-oriented and they might be oriented to do social justice work in schools or in their classrooms, if they don't have the support they need, if they don't have the resources, if they are being pushed back and being stifled, then they, they won't be able to really sustain the work in any engaged type of way. He works with fellow scholars at the Culturally Responsive School Leadership Institute to do equity audits, intense exploration on where racial bias is occurring in schools. Then they find ways to fix it. One of the reasons that it's so bad in, in American schools is that educators, by and large, don't know how to address it or how to solve it. I look at specific reasons that the equity data uh, might be low for certain student groups or for certain races or for certain um, language groups of students, not just if it's happening and where it's happening, but why. Once the gaps are identified, administrators are trained to fix them. Lesson number one, don't forget whom you're serving. Looking at equity data alone misses the point. A lot of the models of equity audits out there do not engage student voice at all. They don't engage parent experiences or voice at all. And then they go and make recommendations to a district based on just what teachers and, and leaders are saying. And that's exactly what my research pushes up against. So for leaders to, to act without collaboration, deep collaboration with folks in the community and with students, it's a problem. And that's part of the problem why these equity problems are uh, showing up the ways that they do and are so sustained and are so stubborn. Involving the community is time consuming. It's difficult. It requires resources. 
and it's absolutely necessary to pull schools out of the ruts that they've been channeled into concerning race. What are students coming to school with? What are the histories and the experiences in the neighborhoods uh, and in their families that schools need to know about in order to best serve them within the school? What are those experiences and those real life histories, both lived and um, ancestral histories uh, and languages? Uh, what is it that school leaders need to know in order to be able to lead schools effectively? Lead schools effectively. What do they need to know about the community? and the students in order to lead schools effectively. So these kind of questions have just not been asked by educators up until very recently. And even now, it's a very small number of educators who are even asking this question and these types of questions. A very compelling piece of the Institute work that Khalifa does is giving students the opportunity to guide the process. We also do something called youth participatory action research. It gives the power of students to, to investigate their own context, both school and community context, to decide what they want to study, to begin to collect that data, and then to present that data in powerful ways to the district personnel who are now hearing and who have agreed that these students should be empowered. Because of course, these students already have the power. It's just whether or not it will be recognized by people in schools. When Cynthia DeVies became an educational equity coordinator at Westerville City Schools seven years ago, the district had been hit with an unsettling report. There were a lot of disparities that basically mirrored what we were seeing nationally and statewide. Disparity in disciplinary actions, in academic offerings to students of color, and how accepted some students felt in school so we knew that we needed to address it then, and so that's when we began our work. DeVise, who is now a doctoral student in the college, decided to get close up to the problems, studying them in the schools for a year. What the district needed, she decided, was to confront its systemic and implicit bias. We needed to have courageous conversations about our cultural mindset of our leaders. And so one of the things that we really wanted to do was start with our administrators and our executive leadership team to begin to talk about our mindset because we knew that in order for us to um, sustain the work for the long haul, we needed to get our leadership up to par in regards to how do we feel and what do we believe and what do we need to um, move forward in order to be able to tackle some of the gaps that we saw. The district worked with the Kerwin Institute and then in 2020 with Ohio State's College of Education and Human Ecology to begin conversations with teachers and staff. So we really dug deep into what does implicit bias look like? How do prejudices reside in us? We looked at the brain and how it plays on our brain. And we looked at media. We looked at um, how these things are ingrained in us over a period of time. We needed people to be aware that their decisions could be impacted by something that they already have a bias to from outside sources, but then that plays on their decision-making capabilities in the classroom. And we needed people to understand that clearly so that they can be aware so that when they need to make a decision, then they wouldn't be biased towards any students in our buildings, but specifically those students who are marginalized. The Be the Change professional development series for educators was offered to thousands of teachers in central Ohio including Westerville schools. I'm wondering if there was any piece that just kind of made them stop and go, oh, that's me, or I did that. In the module, there is a piece that was created 
specifically around the time of George Floyd. And it was giving students a voice and they created student vignettes. And those student vignettes were the voices of students in Central Ohio who took the social media during the George Floyd moment to express their thoughts about the school system. We asked several students in our district if they could record their voice to these written vignettes. And so every person who went through the module had to hear the student's voice about their story. Their stories were about curriculum. Their stories were about how they were treated by students. A Black friend of mine said that he is so used to people calling him the N-word and asking for a pass that it doesn't even affect him anymore, even though he's only a freshman. He told me he used to cry about it and not understand, but now he just deals with it. How they were treated by teachers or educators in our district. I get racist remarks almost daily at school and I have reported to school counselors, teachers, and administrators multiple times just this last semester. And every single time they say they will look into it and give consequences, but nothing ever gets done. Someone talked about how, as a student, they wanted support from a teacher because they felt alienated because of who they were, because of their race or because of their gender or because of their sexual orientation. At that point, I was burying my face in my sweater, trying not to cry. And then they had to write a letter to the student addressing that. What would you do? How would you write the student who shared their voice today? What would you say? Those elements in that workshop were just very powerful. Teachers walked away saying it was heavy, but they needed to hear it. They needed to experience it for them to begin to make change. That gave me chill bumps when you said that you put the students' voices to to those quotes. I mean, it was just so powerful. So is it changing your curriculum or your policies there at, at uh, the schools? It certainly has. This work has evolved over the seven years that I've been here. And we're seeing that, well, we have changed our policies when it comes to our um, achievement and getting our students into accelerated or advanced courses. Um, When I first started here, there were prerequisites. You had to have a teacher recommend you for a course, or you had to have a certain score. Um, Now we, in our secondary spaces, that has been removed. And any student who wants to try or to be able to excel and to get into these spaces, they're open. Books containing racial slurs have been put on pause at the student's request. Each school has an equity team with teachers, counselors, principals, parents, and students. They make decisions together. Their efforts have begun to have an impact, and the data is bearing this out. We have implemented um, different strategies and support systems so that we're not at the space where Black and brown students are three times more likely to be disciplined. So we're having conversations to make sure that our policies and our practices are equitable. And that's very important for us. To learn more about the Be the Change professional development series for educators, created by Ohio State's College of Education and Human Ecology, contact Nicole Luthi at luthy.22 at osu.edu.